for the world, it's time that somebody did something nice for you. Start by washing your feet. Sound familiar? This old piggy went to temple. This old piggy did not. Got you a present. It's a Snuggie. How about a smoothie? It's got Fig Newtons and, and olives and pomegranates in it. You know, stuff that you like. I mean, I know you said your burden was light, but boy, you have some tension here. from heaven to earth. Sea of Galilee blue, heat of the other interior. It's yours. Goodness gracious, what were you doing? Installing the pearly gates? Okay, Jesus, here I am. Praising you with all my heart, mind, soul, strength, pocketbook. Feels pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. Done a lot of sewing today. A lot of sewing. Okay, so now that that's out of the way, I think it's time we get to some of the things that I need, since that's kind of how this works, right? Like, your back, my back kind of thing. Number one, um, what needs to happen for my family? Well, what do you think? Do you ever kind of pray that way, where you kind of think you need to butter Jesus up a little bit by all the nice things that you need to say to him so that he can answer your prayers? Is that how prayer works? Sometimes it might be, but regardless, um, today we'll see just how much prayer makes a difference in our lives, as we've talked about in this morning's with Jesus series, how spending time with God can make a difference in your life. So as we get started today, I just want to, it just made me think back to this ordinary Saturday for most people, but it was not an ordinary Saturday for me. Uh, because it was an important one. It was one where in, uh, in a few hours I would get dressed up to the nines, I would arrive at a church and then take some pictures with some good guy friends of mine, and then I would wait a little bit, take some more pictures with my family, wait a little bit longer, hear a song or two, and then see this woman dressed in white coming down this aisle, and I would see her for the first time, and then we would get married. So kind of an important Saturday for me, and I was happen- happening this morning to make breakfast with my groomsmen when the phone rings. Now, I was rather excited because I was pretty sure it was my wife. I don't even know if we had, like, cell phones or if we had caller ID. I don't remember. But I just remember when I picked up the phone, it was her lovely voice, and I was so giddy because we had found a photographer where we wouldn't have to see each other before our wedding. There wasn't too many of them left, and we wanted to do that. We're kind of old-fashioned in that way. So I'm like, oh, hello. And we didn't think to ask the photographer, like, we thought to ask them if they would do that. We didn't think to ask them how creative they were with lighting. Like, not on our top five list of questions. And that became extremely important with the second phrase that my wife told me, which was, uh, there's no power at the church. Uh, what do you mean <laughs> there's no power at the church? Well, the night before, the, the Metro had these monsoon-like thunderstorms that came through without any regard for people's weddings the next day. And so power was out all over the metro. And so this little church in Bloomington had zero lights. 
And, we, and it was like the middle of August. So it was going to be a day where, oh, I think it was already 88 degrees. It was 82 at, before 9 a.m. It was 88 by 10. It was 90-some percent humidity. It was going to be this steamy, sticky Saturday. And you know what that means, right? Because that means that, like, the men have to show up first in their black tuxes. And that means we get, like, a lot of color in their faces because they're sweaty. And that means, like, if you have some crazy relatives and then you add humidity and heat to it, they d- it's just like zombie land. It's craziness. And so um, that was mostly my side. So crabby relatives, and then it's like all this money that you just put into photography and you're going to get silhouettes. We might as well have just, like, made cardboard cutouts because the image that we got was, like, these, nothing is going to turn out well. And so... All of a sudden, I was realizing that my wedding was quickly becoming this giant fiasco, and I was just starting to realize that Jesus was probably the only one who could fix it. Now, I don't think, as I've thought about this for a while, that weddings have really, I don't think they've really changed that much in the last couple millennia. Like, certainly, in, in a few ways they've changed, but for the most part, they're still seen, no matter what culture, no matter what country, they're still seen as these huge celebrations all over the world. And the other thing that's similar, again, no matter what culture or what country, um, is that there's one common thing, and it's the pressure to have a great wedding. Like, Pinterest has, has just boosted creativity, but there's still a ton of pressure to have a great wedding. And no matter what culture, no matter the guilt, innocence, the honor, shame cultures, like everybody faces these dilemmas of what if something goes wrong? Like from the embarrassing, um, you know, people come at the wrong time for pictures or you get placed at the wrong table. Like, what did they do that for? I'm with all the weirdos. And, you know, then people that you, that you see on your registry invite, you know, get gifts for you, and then they don't get invited to the wedding, and then they return the gifts, and then it's just weird afterwards, to the more shameful, like the roast beef or the, the steak doesn't get cooked all the way so a dozen people get sick, um, or, or families say they're going to help pay for the wedding, and then they don't, or the best man can't do his speech because he's consumed too much alcohol, or the bride like, gets in this huge fight with the personal attendant, and now, like, it's moments before their ceremony, and they're not speaking. And these are all things that have happened at people's weddings that I've gotten to be a part of. And so, from the embarrassing to the shameful, there's this reality in weddings that anything can go wrong, and it's all right there for everybody to see. I don't know what fiascos you're facing in your life right now. I don't know if they're simple or if they're complex. I don't know if they're embarrassing or they're maybe more shameful. But what I do know is that Jesus actually wants to help you with whatever you're facing. And the reason I think I know that is because of some of the stories that we're seeing and reading in these mornings with Jesus. And just like our wedding days, any wedding day is meant to be a celebration. Our lives were meant to be a celebration, not just for today, but forever. And we find the power and we find the place, no matter if 
the wine is running out, like we'll see in the story, or the power goes out, like Jesus wants to be there, and he wants to fix not just our little fiascos, but he really wants to fix the entire world. He wants to put it all back to right, and in this story today, we actually see how he does that. So if you have a a Bible or you have an app that has a Bible, why don't you turn to John chapter 2. We're going to see what at first looks like a simple story, but we'll find out in this story really how Jesus brings the whole world back to right. John chapter 2, verse 1 says, It was on the third day a wedding took place in, in, at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus came to him. Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus said, My hour has not yet come. And the mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill these jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The servants did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants knew where it had come from. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone, who bring, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here at Cana, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. Now, the first thing I think that's fairly apparent in the story that we often skip over because it doesn't seem spiritual enough is just the fact that Jesus came to fix the simple parts of our lives. Like here in the story, we have a problem, a big problem, especially for the Near Eastern culture. The Near Eastern culture was um, a culture of honor and shame. So that meant that when weddings happened, they were an incredibly important occasion, and the groom was responsible for all the hospitality that would accompany this week-long celebration. So food, drink, potentially, probably shelter, and if this event went off well, guess what? Then he's honored, his family's honored, the town's honored, everything's great. But if something goes wrong, then the guests are dishonored, and they're ashamed brought on his, him and his family and in the community. And in a close community, that family would be shamed in such a way that that heir never would be forgotten. And it would literally haunt this new couple for the rest of their lives. And now, we can only kind of guess why Jesus' mother brought this request to him. Was she a relative? Did she know something that nobody else knew? We, we can only guess for that part, but we can realize that Jesus actually cares about the simple parts of our lives because there's this request, and he meets it. Now, his mother brings this request, doesn't have a problem with it, and Jesus kind of rebukes her. We're going to come back to why he does that, but I think in that, we can just think for a minute about why it's difficult 
for you and I to accept that Jesus wants to help us with the simple parts of our lives. Have you ever thought about that? I think some people that may not believe and follow Jesus feel like Jesus is going to cramp their lifestyle. Like that he's anti-fun. That he is always serious and he doesn't do any just normal things. And, and this wedding shows us that, that he's involved in the everyday things of life. He, he just attended a wedding. I think also that sometimes people don't ask for help because they see themselves outside of whatever the, the right faith or the right religion or the right lifestyle is. They see themselves outside of that. They think that Jesus only helps these kinds of people, and now I'm not in this group. And all throughout the stories, we see Jesus hanging out with the people that were outside. The, the culture at large was saying, well, Jesus, why don't you do this? And you're always hanging out with, and I think they're labeled the gluttons, the drunkards, and the sinners. Why are you always hanging out with those people? Jesus, whatever you're... I would challenge you that whatever your definition of outside is, that Jesus would be there. And Jesus would want to spend time with you. If you're carrying around some sin or some shame, Jesus would meet you there. Absolutely. I think one of the other reasons why people may have a hard time believing that Jesus actually wants to help you with the simple parts of your life is is that he's only interested in the big spiritual stuff. Like, this, this is too insignificant, so we just forget to invite him in. Well, think about this. Until he was prompted to act, he was just a guest at a wedding. A wedding where we don't even know the couple's name, and he's just attending. Because he does care about the simple parts of your life and of my life. So what parts have you not really even thought to invite Jesus into? If you believe and follow him, what parts would you say, yeah, I just kind of skip over that. Maybe it's worth writing down. And regardless of if you believe and follow him, how could you invite him into your life? Just even as an experiment, if you're not sure you want to believe in him, but, but what parts might he care about? What, what would that look like? I think it could look like at the end of your day, having a conversation with, with God, he'll hear you. You can choose if you want it out loud or not, but having a day, uh, conversation about your highs and your lows, about what, what you thought was spectacular about your day and what was really hard about your day. I think another thing that you could do is you could literally spend a morning with Jesus, not to be cheesy and go off of our um, title, but, you know, Leslie, one of our um, dedicated volunteers and friends, she wrote uh, a great article a couple weeks ago about how she has this chair in, in her living room, right? Living room, part of their atrium area, and she, she calls it her Jesus chair, and she sits in that chair, and she journals, and she listens, and she reads, and she talks. And so she's created a space to spend time with God because God does care about the simple parts of our lives. And I think we see that in here. But I don't think it's enough for us to merely invite him into the simple parts. 
Because yes, Jesus fixed this problem, right? Like the, there's water that's turned into wine, and now there's no shame involved. The wedding is saved. But what about next weekend? You ever feel like that? Like, okay, Jesus, you help me out with this, but, but what about next week? What about next time I feel like an outsider? What about next time I'm potentially dishonored? What about next time I carry that shame? Like, there's going to be another next time. So Jesus just doesn't come to fix the simple parts. I think he comes to fix the significant parts of our lives, too. There's, there's so much more going on in this story than, than at first glance. Yes, it's true. Like, Jesus comes and fixes a problem. But there's something deeper going on as well. And John starts telling us the clues about this by even just naming the day. You catch that? On the third day. Which, if you if you're keep up with your Jewish writing, third day is like a code. Three is a code. It's the secret, it's the secret clue that says that it, it's kind of journey language. It means that we're not where we were, and we're not where we're supposed to be, but we can see it in the distance. It's that moment of the resurrection where Jesus is not dead anymore. His kingdom hasn't fully arrived, but they can see it in the distance. It's the time here where Jesus is saying the old is coming to an end and the new, the new kingdom, it's about to come, but we can just, we can see it in the distance. And so that's the first clue. The second clue is this idea of six religious Jewish stone purification jars. These are kinds used for ceremonial washings. They would, they would fill these with water and they would wash themselves, not merely of germs before a, a meal, but like wash themselves symbolically of their sin, of their ways that they have, you know, thought touched the wrong people, said the wrong things, eaten the wrong foods. This was, in their words, this fancy word was called defilement. Like it was, it was this idea of corruption. And so Jesus is giving us a clue in this by saying, like, these are things that are used to clean you, clean off this defilement in, in this religious way. But six is also a number in Jewish language that means it's not complete. Seven is perfect or seven is complete. Six is incomplete. Six means insufficient. It means that, that these pots, this way of cleaning was insufficient for really cleaning these people, really making them whole. And I think we get this at a basic level. Like, yes, you can wash your hands after you touch something that's nasty, but how do you wash your soul? How do, you, how do you wash the images away that you've seen of hate or the images of lust or the images of sickness? How do you get rid of those? You can't really wash those out. And this is just, this isn't to make us feel guilty. It's to say that this way of thinking is insufficient. And the writer is trying to tell us that is these purification things are insufficient. Jesus and, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they would kind of go at this. They would dialogue about this all the time. One time in Matthew, he tells us that they're going back and forth about why Jesus doesn't wash the way that, the, the way that they're supposed to wash. And he says straight up, he says, look, uh, Matthew 15, 10, Jesus calls the crowd together, including the religious leaders, and says, what goes into someone's mouth is not what defiles them, but what comes out of their mouth, that defiles them. He says, in another place, evil actions come from an evil heart. There was a, there was a thing in the news, or I think somebody might have posted on Facebook, this billboard, um, this isn't meant to be a political statement, just to get my point across. It said, um, in, in the wake of 
the shootings that have been happening around our country, there's a billboard that said, Cain killed Abel with a rock. It's a heart problem, not a gun problem. And my point is not about the guns, it's about the heart. See, we can't fix our heart. And that's why Jesus doesn't just come to fix the simple parts of our lives, he comes to fix the significant parts of our lives. And, and now you might practice, and I practice, some things that we might call religious or rituals, some things that we might do to help us feel significant, or the things that we might do to help us have a relationship with God. And Jesus isn't necessarily criticizing those forms, but he is questioning their focus. So maybe an important question would be, what are the ways that you're trying to find significance in your life right now? What are you trying to fill your life with if your life was a jar to make you feel significant? Like we all long to be significant. And for some of us, that means that we'll do things that are ritualistic or we'll do things that are religious to make us feel better. The, the prophets of old knew this. They Isaiah was one of them who said, you know, speaking for God, these people are far from me. You know, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. They say they're mine, but their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by route. This idea that we can go through motions that say that we're in a relationship with God, but really, really we're looking for other ways to fill ourselves up other ways to find significance. And, and Jesus says when he comes on the scene that when a life filled with him is like new wine that can't be put in an old container, these wineskins, and the prophets would talk about when the Messiah comes, that it would be characterized by this new wine, this joy of new wine. So this, this is just symbolic language of which they're trying to say, this is what this new kingdom would be marked with. And so John is trying to give us these cues in the scripture that something new is happening. That, that the way they've been doing things is insufficient and something new is needed to replace it. And so those jars are filled up to the brim with water. That Jesus will turn into wine to symbolize this joy of his new kingdom. Does the way that you do your faith, does the way you do your religious activity, does it bring you joy? Or does it bring you guilt? You know, when you think about Jesus, do you see him as someone who's like a priest or a minister who might talk at you (laughs) or with you once a week that you might um, do things to feel better about yourself? Kind of that ruler, servant mentality. Or do you see him as a friend who would invite you to a big party. And that's in essence what this wedding was. Do you see him as someone who is more like the life of the party than a ruler? Someone who's more like a bride and a groom or a friend than someone off in the distance. This is what Jesus is trying to get at with this story. This is what the writer's trying to get at. And so it it really begs us to consider what we've tried to fill our lives with to find significance. And if 
Jesus might be wanting to transform that in your life. And let me, let me tell you that if you do give him those places of significance, he will fill them. He will fill them in ways that, that I don't think you can ever imagine. Well, the last thing I think we see in this story is that Jesus comes to fix the eternal parts of our life. Not just the significant, not just the simple, but the eternal. See, in my, you know, verse 11 is, is what kind of cues this one for me. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. See, in my wedding pot without power fiasco, like I prayed and prayed and I was praying for a miracle. I wanted a miracle, and I think the reason my prayer wasn't answered is exactly because I wanted a miracle. But I didn't want a sign. I didn't ask for a sign. See, a miracle is an act of power. A miracle is a supernatural act of power. And, and people, think about it, they want miracles. They have questions that they want answers to. They have problems that they want solutions to. They have desperate places where they need some power to come in for their plans. They might even want some wine for their party. But miracles are not signs. And the problem with miracles is our pride. See, prophets perform miracles all the time. But a sign, a sign points beyond the miracle. The sign is about this thing that should prompt us to say, who is the person who performed this? What does that say about them? See, later, after Jesus performs this miracle where he multiplies bread and wine, people experience that miracle, and they come back to Jesus because they're hungry for another miracle. And Jesus says to them, you know, you came back because I fed you. You didn't see God in my actions. You just got a meal, and you got it for free. And now you're hungry again. They missed the sign. People who were hungry for bread were not hungry to trust Jesus, who is called the bread of life. See, signs, they, they point us not to the act of power, but to the powerful actor that did it. And that's what is happening here. See, I thought that I needed a miracle on my wedding day because I thought it was about not having it be embarrassing, not having it go wrong. And, and God didn't turn on the power. But I don't even think it'll show up in this picture. See, I, I got a picture for you. But his presence and his glory were absolutely revealed in this ceremony. We had person after person come up and say it was obvious that Jesus was there. It was obvious that this was about Jesus and not just two people. I, I still have trouble comprehending that day because of what we experienced. I mean, this is with no lighting and there was very small windows in it. There never should have been the amount of radiance that was there. And I don't, I don't say that to say that it's about my wedding. 
Because, see, signs point to something beyond the miracle. And that day was pointed beyond two people to Christ. And, and John says this was his first sign in which they revealed his glory. There's only two times where the signs that Jesus does are actually numbered, and it, they both happen in Cana. And this is so powerful. This first one is so powerful because it starts the countdown to the last one. So where do you need to start asking for signs instead of miracles? Because Jesus does want to reveal his glory in your life. And that those problems, those fiascos, whatever you're facing, Jesus wants to be invited into those. But not just so that we don't look bad so that his glory is revealed. Because the glory of this sign isn't that it just opened up the heavens so people could see Jesus for who he is, so his disciples could believe in. The, the glory of this sign is that it actually literally started a countdown to the last sign. That's why Jesus had such a hard time with his mother saying something. When he says, woman, why do you involve me? It's not meant to be disrespectful. It's meant to say, my hour, my time of sacrifice, my time of death, which is always what John means when he uses the word hour, it's not yet come. And if we do this, if I do this, it starts the clock to the point where I will now have to be the perfect sacrifice for humanity's sin. Because it is a heart problem. Because it's not just about shame and not just about embarrassment. It's about the fact that even if there were no guns, that we would have rocks. It's about the fact that when we go to a wedding and someone looks better than us, we might have a thought of comparison. It's this thing in us that, that started way back at creation that God never intended for us. When we chose the knowledge of good and evil over the no knowledge and love of God. But Jesus comes to fix that wrong heal that and restore that. And he does that so clearly in his final and greatest sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that he is for everything that humanity has ever done. And John says, this reveals glory. He says it so clearly in John 1. So the word became flesh, or the word became human, and made his home here among us, and we have seen his glory the glory of the Father's one and only Son. I mean, this isn't just about the fact that Jesus is showing signs that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who can fulfill the old religious system and complete that and give us a new way to have faith in God. Yes, that's cool. That's amazing, especially if we were Jewish, especially if we studied all that. Great. But he's so much more than that too. He's the one who comes to heal everything. To heal everything the simple parts of our life when we invite him in, to heal the significant parts of our life when we actually give those places where we want to find significance to him. And he heals the eternal parts of our life when we trust him for life. Where are you trusting God for your life, for everything? Where are you seeing his glory and his sacrifice? Because he loves you so much that he died for you. And he wants life with you. And it'll still be fun. And 
it'll still be significant. In fact, you'll be a healing agent in the world. God wants you to be involved with his restoration projects all over the world. What would that mean for your life? Let's take a moment and, and just pause and we'll pray. And the band will come up. Think about the different parts that we've talked about today. And Holy Spirit, just in this time as we reflect on this, this story, that in one sense is a simple and practical way that you help us out, but in another sense is a whole way that you've really come and shown that you restore the whole world through the death and the offering of your son. I think back to my wedding day where, where a, a man gave his only daughter away to someone who probably would not treat her as well as he does, even though I try. And God, you gave your one and only son to humanity who did not treat him well. To those that didn't recognize him. To those that, that saw him as evil, to those who saw him as an enemy and those who saw him as a threat, and we, God, killed him. And even in that, you still love us. And by trusting in the one who gave his life for us, you give us life. God, I pray that you would speak to us about the parts of our life where we need to trust you. And that you'd give us life in all those parts. For your good and your glory. Amen.